you think you are living healthy, but actually the healthy living itself becomes unhealthy. Like you become a burden to yourself and others in a sense. It's, it's, and the whole definition of biohacking, health optimization, is to optimize the environment outside and inside of you. And I would say to control the environment outside and inside of you. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance and longevity. My name is Angela Foster and I'm a former corporate lawyer and high performance health coach. Each week I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, in this week's podcast, I'm chatting to Timo Arena, a technology entrepreneur, author, and professional speaker. Timo is one of the forefront thinkers on the digital transformation of learning, work, leadership, health, and the future of humanity. And in 2015, he received the Leonardo Award for Humanity and Digitization. He's the co-author of the Biohackers Handbook for Optimizing Health and Wellbeing with Technological and Biological Tools. And he's also the founder of Biohacker Center, an independent research entity into optimal human performance based in Helsinki. He's also the founder and curator of the Biohackers Summit, a leading international conference for better living through science, technology and nature that attracts thousands of attendees annually. And just to let you know quickly before we dive into this week's episode, I'm speaking at the Biohacker London event organised by Timu on the 1st of September. We've put a link in the show notes so you can come and join us in person. And now without further delay, let's dive into all things health and performance, the latest tech, consciousness and biohacking, including the potential dark side of biohacking. So Timo, it's great to be here with you today. I uh, enjoyed the summit. I particularly enjoyed your talk yesterday. Thank you. The yeah, it's side. quite yeah. Dark side of biohacking is quite unconventional topic, maybe because in these events people are always like cheerleading. Everyone is, you know, better, faster, stronger, superhuman. Like, how do you optimize your day? What's your daily routine and all that? And it's all about perfection. And I think it kind of comes from you know when people go on stage, also they wanna you know share advice and you know best practices but i want to speak about you know the other side of it and i mean we can go into it if you want to like uh, speak about the details of course what it's all about but this whole health and wellness industry is is quite interesting the way how i see it is that people have some kind of trauma or unresolved things that often led to the health problems in the first place let's say you put all your time into your work, you know, mm-hmm. not in relationships, not in recovery, not in sleep when you're in a bed here, but you like put all the hours in because you don't feel enough, you know, you want to get more done, more hours in, you want to be successful. You're driven by external validation, external gratification. Often, you know, that's maybe feeling not enough uh, in the context of your siblings or your friends or family or or maybe your parents were asking a lot from you and then like all that like uh, need to you know top the game even top your own achievements leads to stress and burnout and health problems and then you know that you know misery and depression and pain that then leads into kind of the hero journey where you overcome your problems often like through fixing your body and taking care of your sleep and doing stress management and breath work and maybe fixing your nutrition and through supplementation, starting to eat a proper diet, not something that actually drags you down, kind of common sense things in a biohacking community. But then that becomes the other control mechanism. Just like 
growing up, you know, the control mechanism was not feeling enough and you need to like control your work and achieve all kinds of things. Then suddenly this achievement driven mentality is put into the health and wellness and that becomes like an extreme sport mm. on its own. So, exactly. it's, so what is happening there, you, you haven't really healed the underlying problem that led to the health problems in the first place. Yeah. And uh, only when you recognize that and you're able to, you know, look yourself into the mirror and humbly ask, like, why do I need to be better, faster, stronger, or result-oriented and successful and all that, like, and that you find yourself worth without status or the validation and all that, like, I mean, I think that's where the healing often starts. And it doesn't mean that you don't need to be successful. It doesn't mean you don't need to, you know, get things done. It doesn't mean you don't need to be healthy and, like, you know, driven by, by feeling good. But it's about the shadow and understanding like kind of what led you in there in the first place and maybe being a little bit humble and, um, you know, uh, care about yourself a little bit more also like in a, in a different way. Because it can be a pretty lonely place. And one thing that it's about, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, in the audience of this kind of conference, what they're kind of going through. But then you have the experts, the health influencers who are also wounded healers. So... So they ended up with a wounding experience and then through, you know, all this biohacking that was their wounded healer story, they healed themselves. So they want to they have an emotional connection. So they want to dedicate their time in healing and helping others. And maybe they start sharing about it, doing a health podcast mm. or doing like a, they have maybe an Instagram account or, or, you know, they build a product. They get into this whole thing. They kind of embody that enthusiasm in a sense and uh, uh, so it becomes an identity there's nothing wrong about that like that you find your passion in a sense it's it's often even encouraged to find your passion but what can happen is that um, because we need to brand ourselves we need to make ourselves clear to our audiences what we are about so if we take for example the case of liver king is a guy who was all about organ supplements and basically becoming big and muscular and successful and all of that um, by eating basically raw organic you know meat basically organ supplements and organ meats and all that and uh, then that's what the audience starts to portray you as and then you start to produce content to them and they start to like what you do you know they start to share what you do all of that but what if there's a mismatch between who you are actually really and the persona or the avatar or the illusion you created that can be a pretty lonely place and in the case of liver king he was taking hormones but his story didn't allow him to tell that i'm taking hormones so in the end there was a leak and someone spilled the beans and, and showed that, hey, he's actually taking hormones and it's not natural. And it's, in a way for him, I would say it was a blessing that he got caught, in a sense. Because then he said that, okay, from now on, I will try to do it in a natural way. But of course, he lost some credibility. But probably inside, you know, he felt maybe relieved, mm. in a sense, that he doesn't need to fake it. But there's so much of that fake it till you make it kind of mentality. We have all these like um, biohacking gurus 
like uh, you know I don't want to say names but if you take for example um, Dave Asprey who's been kind of the leading figure of this whole movement what he has been all about is better faster stronger that you take a pill you can only sleep four hours or something you take nootropics you uh, optimize your sleep so that your sleep is so efficient that you only need five hours of sleep or six hours of sleep when you look at the studies it's not really you know the case that you can actually it doesn't stand up you can't really get by with five hours of sleep but it's a nice story for all these people in the rat wheel who mm. are sleeping four or five hours that okay i can sleep four or five hours and still kick ass and yes you can with all these stimulants and these practices and like you know you can actually squeeze a little bit more performance out and you can maybe feel that you're functioning better but what happens there is like you're you have less wiggling room you have less um kind of buffer in a sense when you're burning the candle from both ends you know you don't have any room anymore right mm-hmm. so you already are squeezing everything out what if you know you don't have any room left in a sense and that's what happens very often in high performance culture is that you try to fit in every second every minute to try to achieve more and more and more what if you are like already fully optimized you're running basically a marathon at the highest level like you have no room for mistake you have no you have no room basically uh, and and that i think is kind of what is showing up in uh, you know, like so many people are worried that this guy actually looks older now but he's still living the story that i'm a young guy you know mm-hmm. he's still communicating yeah, that that i'm aging slower and i'm kicking ass and i'm so super healthy and all that and people are looking at that hey there's something wrong it doesn't look healthy like you don't look healthy and uh, so um i don't know like it could be completely i might be wrong but i have a feeling that he's not telling something mm. and and you know then people their audience also starts to see that there's a mismatch between the story that you tell and the lies you tell and the lies you tell yourself and the public persona the kind of circus animal you became in a sense and i've seen this in so many different fields we can go from health to some other area you take some top youtubers you start to build you know something out of enthusiasm and you become actually uh, very very good at it and you you do it from passion then suddenly you get following suddenly have 1000 followers 10000 followers 100000 followers the pressure builds up people want more of you of kind of how they kind of box you right mm. so i know this because 10 years ago i had all these like wearables and headgear and like eeg readers and all that so people actually expected that i I, ha- i must have like 25 wearables on me all the time because on press photos i had those mm. because every time the journalists they wanted to put you know those devices on let's let's put all all the devices on So then people started expecting that I have that. I, I I was invited to conferences to speak about, you know, like like put all the devices on, you know. It's kind of like your audience starts to create you in a sense. Like they, your avatar. They turn you into a caricature. Mm. You become kind of a caricature in a sense. An over exaggeration of of what it is. And uh, an avatar in a sense. I mean people create avatars consciously or unconsciously. Like um, if you think of anyone's Instagram profile, everyone knows that your Instagram profile is to a certain extent fake. It's not a representative of your real life. Like it, there is always like deliberately taken photo angles and it's all showing success, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's it, all interesting moments of your life. 
So then people start to relate to that. They see you as a successful person, you know, flies around, you know, goes to nice restaurants and always happy on family, you know, vacations and whatnot. But of course, you know that, you know, your daily life is not as rosy, right? And everyone knows that everyone else's life is probably not that rosy. But you still kind of compare yourself to that and, and you feel less, in a sense, as a follower. So that's, on both sides, there's depression. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably like me, a busy mum, entrepreneur, biohacker, or other high performer. And that requires a huge amount of energy and resilience to deal with life's challenges on a daily basis. There are two key supplements that I love that help me to do this. The first is Biostat Labs NAD Regen, which supports NAD in the body. NAD is known as the molecule of youth and is critical for energy. Taking NAD Regen helps me maintain high energy every day so I can achieve more in my business and also show up better for my family, all while protecting my longevity and avoiding burnout. The second is GDAID, Biostat Labs' unique blood sugar formulation. Managing your blood sugar is also essential for high energy cognition and longevity. GDAID combines dihydroberberine, often called nature's metformin, with the very best ingredients for all-round metabolic health. This product is like having your cake and eating it. I take NAD Regen in the morning and GDA just before my most carb-heavy meal of the day to blunt the glucose spike. And now I want to help you to support your energy, metabolism, and longevity so you can truly show up as your best self. So I've organized a unique offer for you, my listeners, that's not available anywhere else. When you purchase two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs will send you a free bottle of GDA. Simply go to biostatlabs.com forward slash Angela to get your free bottle. That's biostatlabs.com forward slash Angela to get your exclusive offer. I'm inviting you to join our newly opened High Performance Health Facebook group, where we're all about unlocking our utmost potential. If you are a fellow biohacker, a coach, or a woman with an entrepreneurial spirit looking for peak performance, and our community of ambitious women is just for you. But it's not just about connecting with like-minded women. It's about empowering each other. We have weekly live training, Q&As, and a bunch of other exclusive content that I don't get the chance to share anywhere else. New biohacks I'm exploring, plus extra nuggets of wisdom from my podcast guests and so much more. It's free to join. Simply click the top link in the show notes or go to angelafoster.me forward slash HP. That's angelafoster.me forward slash HPH or click the top link in the show notes. And once inside, send me a message so we can connect personally. I can't wait to see you there. The followers feel depressed looking at everyone else's life is better. And then the people who are the influencers, they feel depressed because they can't keep up with the role they've built. So the social media and social technology was supposed to liberate us make us happier, you know, more connected. It's actually making us more lonely. And there's so many of these influencers have millions of followers and they just like, they just end up in mental asylums and they quit or just take a break. They can't do that anymore because at some point it's like too much. And it's also the same for, not just for, you know, let's say a health influencer. It can be also an OnlyFans model. I just read recently about a woman who was a really, really successful OnlyFans model. You would think that with all that attention, she wouldn't be lonely. But she was the loneliest person on this planet. And she couldn't like continue the work because like all she was doing is was in a studio 16 hours per day, mm. alone at home, basically. 
it's like like feeding this machinery in a sense of paying the bills but it's not fun in the end and then you become a caricature again like people start to expect you, you to be in a, a certain way you, you play a role and in a way that's what we do when we grow up we kind of start to play a role all of us have like some kind of mask or persona and it's has you know attached symbols and names you know i'm temoir and i'm a biohacker and if you think about how people introduce each other it's also like okay what do you do which school did you go like like uh, okay okay what do you do usually it's like people identify that okay i'm a ceo or i'm, a, I'm you know in the health industry or something they define themselves through the work that they do or they define themselves with uh, their achievements or they define themselves um, online of course as influencers so they have an account or a website or something like this so then like the real self is of course something different than what the labels are and we we all do it it's called in psychology it's called the narrative identity so um what is a narrative identity it's a story you tell to yourself and to others who you are and we are encouraged to do it it's called the curriculum vitae cv right and what do you put on your cv your achievements and what do you leave out often the things you failed in right? yeah, exactly so you only put your achievements and you often exaggerate sometimes things and um, there's all these personal branding gurus that try to find you know in you like the things that that you are really good at and what to like highlight and emphasize and sometimes people make stuff up also you know they exaggerate you know their achievements or, or things they've done and all that because you want to show at your best to others and as an employer when i hire people you know look at their cv and all that my job is to figure out what are you lying on right <laughs> put you through tests you know and i figure out like okay is this actually person really person really good at sales and with people and whatnot like there's the narrative and then there's reality in a sense but um it's very interesting how people also relate to these stories in health and wellness and, and in life in general um i'm very interested when i ask people like okay who are you like what is your story then listen very carefully how they describe it do they describe it by external factors like things that they um let's say you know school they went to or achievements they received or jobs they've done or the titles they hold awards they have or do they um, tell a story of um of their let's say life struggles you know i was born in a family you know we had nothing and then this and that happened and now i have millions or or like um i had i had to leave the war zone and you know something like this it's kind of like what is meaningful to you what is meaningful to that person in their narrative what they're sharing to you how they like describe themselves in a sense and uh, what is interesting about um mental disorders is if you take diagnostic manual of mental illness dcm5 uh, there's cluster b personality disorders there's narcissism there's machiavellism there's histrionic uh, personality disorder there's borderline what is um these are actually cluster b so they're clustered together as that they're kind of related to the same constellation what is often behind there is uh insecurity like we would think of a narcissistic person that that person has like a huge ego 
But no, they don't have actually ego at all. They have an undeveloped ego. What does that mean? So when growing up and you're insecure, maybe you're like put put down by your you know parents. Maybe they were also narcissistic or something like this. Uh, or or like you felt like less uh, next to your brother or sister or your friends or whatever. Uh, so you have this deep insecurity, deep sense of not fulfilling things. So, but you you have role models. So you um, you're you're looking with admiration what others have and you want that and the way you get it is that you imitate it and you basically like you create a false facade you create a facade so it for some it happens uh, through materialism so they show wealth that they don't have right so they they kind of portray they communicate an image um, that makes them feel that they have self-worth and they they make the environment validate that in a sense. So so they 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 push others even to highlight how great they are, or like how successful they are, or how wealthy they are, or like whatever. So so they use these like different externalized factors through which they construct their identity. So like they're basically it's it's there's no one behind the mask. Uh, in a way, it's like a house of mirrors. You only see yourself, or what do you see? You see all these other people, you see yourself in those other people, you want that, so you kind of integrate the greatness from all of that. And that's what personal development the industry is all about. Broken people going into all these conferences, imitating greatness. They go to listen to Tony Robbins or whatnot, mm. and they, you know, Tony is telling like how you can become successful, and they try to imitate that greatness and they read all these like personal development books and like how to manifest things and all that. So because deeply they are afraid to look at who they are, so they start to look elsewhere. They try to see themselves as the idealized version. And that's what narrative identity also is. It's an idealized version of you. And now, you know, what happens in health and wellness, because let's say you were a you, you had, you know, you had some type of, uh, you had a childhood trauma. So you had a childhood trauma or something that, you know, was related to these feelings of insecurity. And that leads to, you know, uh, anxiety, uh, dysfunctional relationships, uh, overworking, whatever, you know, things, because you are trying so hard not to be who you are. Um, and that leads then to burnout and health problems and all kinds of issues. Interestingly, um, if I give you a couple of examples of health issues, um, uh, like how do you relate to problems? Like, 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 are you you? Me personally. Are, are you more likely to hide your emotions? Are you more likely to suppress your emotions, or do you act out? Do you get angry and like show everyone, you know, your angriness? Let's say on average. Um, on average, I think it depends on the situation. But in most situations, I will remain quiet and look for a solution. I probably won't want to right. externalize it too much. Yes. Yeah. So people who are more likely to externalize, so they act out very strongly. They're more likely to have hypertension and heart disease. That's interesting. And yet, you think they would release it? 
yeah, it's kind of like, you know, they, they're going to release it, but also like it's, it's an extreme. So mm. it, it like they're constantly, they have the need to uh, release it. And it, there's a physiological response to the release, right? So yeah. they're a little bit like hysteric in a sense. Yeah, because it's escalated so far. Yeah, they escalate everything. Mm. Now, now the ones who are always like staying quiet, not showing emotion, suppressing it, are more likely to have autoimmune disease. They have immune system dysregulation. They have gut issues. Uh, so there is this idea, you know, the body, you know, stores the trauma, yeah, keeps the score. Strong. Exactly. So what happens there is like, if you don't process it somehow, it will come out in some other way. So it can come out as, uh, as you know, some kind of illness. For me, it came as, uh, as an ulcer, a stress-related illness. Mm. So I was like, you know, putting all the work in, but not, you know, allowing myself to, to relax. And like, I'm also like pretty finished, you know, emotionless sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> not acting out. Yeah. But there is a fine balance there. So it's kind of like, it's good that you externalize it a little bit, but not that it becomes a burden for everyone else. And that you don't internalize it too much that you become always the victim or like the one who just like takes it. You can also become, I think, um, depressed, don't you? Because I think from my own experience, like when I look at my background, where I burnt out with corporate law, uh, like totally sacrificed sleep. um, And then the kind of, when you were talking about, you can be so kind of, at that tipping point, right, where then the next thing knocks you over. For me, it was then having three pregnancies in four years, three children, three C-sections, and that was enough to then tip me into depression, and I left law. And I think sometimes when you suppress stuff and you've kind of lost that self-identity, and that's when I then, the the mental health then took its toll physically, right, so I was hospitalised with pneumonia. And I think almost for me, it's interesting what you're saying there about people going to these events when they're broken and they look, you see people go to like Tony Robbins events and things and they need to go regularly because they have lost their sense of self. So they almost need a tune-up, right? Yeah. Every time they go and then they come and it's almost like a bit of like if you pay someone a compliment and they're like, oh, I'll live off that for a day. But then if they go to one of these big events and they're part of that community, they might live off that for months and they get this buzz, but then it kind of falls away, right? Because it's not the real them. Then they have to go back and be yeah. inspired again. And this is why corporations have all kinds of like, you know, offsides and all that like to cheer people up and yeah, <laughs> take take them somewhere in. else yeah. like just for a minute we are a team and <laughs> then they get back to the dysfunctional organization but um yeah what is interesting is there is when you are faced with challenges that are like overwhelming uh people resort into coping mechanisms coping mechanisms are the way how you cope with stress and trauma and there is like learned behaviors there how you deal with it it's often also learned from parents like like how did they cope with situations so you kind of start to imitate that did they like take the you know alcohol bottle or did they like smoke cigarettes or or uh did they yell or act out or like did they suppress it and 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 in the end like those coping mechanisms are 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 a way of like soothing yourself often that's Mm -hmm. what addictions are so you try to soothe you like try to make yourself feel a bit more comfortable in, in that like overwhelming situation. Sometimes those coping mechanisms are pretty productive. They can be, you know, helpful, but they can also be causing more dysfunction. In a sense. And um, the, in a health and wellness industry, um, what I see is like, if you, if you got, let's say, gut problems, um, 
and that was like overwhelming. And then you went through, you know, fixing your gut and, and healing. Then you're utterly afraid of getting the gut issues again. So you have a trauma. Now, now suddenly everything that it comes to food, you start to control that. So the the extreme diets, the, the, it's called hypochondriac, hypochondriacs, mm. right? So like extreme attention to healthy living. So almost like the healthy living itself becomes a neurotic like control mechanism. Yeah, orthorexia, exactly. Yeah, so you think you are living healthy, but actually the healthy living itself becomes unhealthy. Like you become a burden to yourself and others in a sense. It's, it's, and the whole definition of biohacking, health optimization, is to optimize the environment outside and inside of you. And I would say to control the environment outside and inside of you. So when you get a ring that measures your sleep and stress and all that, this becomes a control mechanism through which you, you know, you first become aware of your sleep and your stress levels and your recovery. And uh, if you if you kind of you can you can have a very dysfunctional relationship with these things also. Basically, I know people who um, they are absolutely neurotic about their sleep scores. Mm. That needs to be perfect. It needs to be high. If it's for some reason it's it's not optimal, uh, their whole day is ruined. True. Almost like and that. Some people wake up, I think, don't they now, in anticipation of looking at the ring data, basically to see. Yeah. Because it's it's getting that dopamine hit in the morning. But I see that it's it's kind of like these are kind of there's two sides to everything, like two sides of the coin in a sense. So this can be the greatest tool for healing that you kind of program, reprogram yourself into new healthier habits where you're more in balance but it can also lead to a, a, another dark place in a sense it can become something that starts to control too much what you do and um, then when you look at it like whatever trauma or experience that led to the health problems in the first place then the mechanism how you try to deal with it leads you to another unhealthy place and um, so it, you'd replace another addiction. Let's say you were overworking, work was your addiction. You replace with with another addiction, which is not being healthy. <laughs> it's, yeah. And we see that like what can happen if you like, let's say, exercise too much or you go on extreme diets, you're like long term on like extreme diets, like women might lose hormonal cycles or, or like with very extended ketogenic diets or you are on weight loss things and you're malnourished and like you look great from the outside you think but like from the inside you're a total wreck you have gut issues and all kinds of stuff your body doesn't recover and bounce back or you're all focused on exercise and you don't give your body enough time to recover because the growth doesn't happen when you exercise the growth doesn't read when you read the book it happens when you go to sleep or you take a break relax like that's when the growth usually happens it's a, you know, the exercise or reading something is just a stimulus so if you don't give your body a break it becomes a sport on its own like it becomes really hard mm. so i mean these are very obvious to the health and wellness industry people but there's a lot of um, extremism in there and uh, like i explained about then these influencers the ones who get most of the views, who get hundreds of thousands of followers or millions, they are the extreme examples 
of some narrow area, like liver king, you know, just mm. organ meats. Or let's say you have um, do you not find a carnivore who's only about that people like. I'm, I was looking at it because I kind of come at it from a more like I think like you do more holistic aspect, right? Of of physical, spiritual, emotional, mental health. When people look at that and they just zone in on one angle, it's super extreme. It's really restrictive. It's very difficult to do to just even something like the carnivore diet. I'm surprised by. How many women? It seems quite a masculine diet. How many women will embrace that and do it? It's antisocial. It's hard to eat out. It's hard to be among friends. Why do you think people are so driven to find those extremes and then follow that influencer and kind of replicate yeah. it? And then something goes wrong, but they'll find another extreme, right? Yeah, veganism has been, of course, one of those yeah. trends. Being a carnivore is another one. Um, calorie restricted diets can be one. I met one guy. Who realized that all his problems was because he was eating because he was eating yeah so he was overweight and like like once he went on a extended fast he felt more energy of course when your body gets into ketosis and all that like you have like more steady energy after like 24 hours and and then the hunger went away and and he was like just a week not eating i mean he had all the mass of course like to, to deal with that situation so then he extended that. This guy was two months on a without fast eating. without eating. So his whole story was that like all his problems originated from him eating. So solving his problem was to go to the other extreme, which is not eating at all. And of course, that's not healthy either. Like no, for kidneys and like all that. Like he got got some pretty interesting challenges out of that. Like I've never heard like he could even do a two months fast, but that guy did it. <laughs> And he was really wired when I met him. Like it, he was like six weeks into it. And, uh, was he sleeping? Uh, yeah, that was the other thing. He had so much energy that, like, you know, he, he was like, couldn't say. Yeah, he couldn't. Like, of course, that's that's gonna be challenging if you're on a fast. But in in the end, that's also how we learn. Often, when we try to change our lives, we get, go a little bit into the extreme, right? Mm. And that the most common question I get: What is your morning routine? What is your evening routine? What is your diet? People want blueprints. Give me the blueprint that gives me, you know, the holy grail. So they want, you know, tell me what I need to exactly do. And but it's not going to be the same. I was having this conversation with Stephen Kotler, right? So personality doesn't scale. Biology does. So if you are an early morning person and you have a good routine that I might learn from as another, say, morning lark, then I might be able to replicate some of it. But if you're an early morning person and it suits your personality and your work ethic, and I'm a night owl, and I try and replicate it, it's not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah, and there is also this that, um, I mean, let's say you, you want to lose weight. People go on to this 30-day, 60-day, whatever, get ready for beach kind of crazy diets or exercise regimens or something. It's, it's very extreme often, and it's very, you know, uncompromising um, to a certain extent. And I guess you need to do that to learn. It's kind of like, you have to, it's like you do martial arts, you can't start to improvise from the first class. You have to actually learn the positions, the katas, the, like there's certain, you know, kind of programs you have to learn first and you repeat them over and over again. Like in Tai Chi, you do the 21 moves exactly the same way, like years. And only when you have like, you know, perfected that, then you can start to improvise in a sense. You don't need, need to rely anymore on technique. So you learn the technique in a way. I think it's the same with diets and daily routines and all that. In order to learn the technique, you have to kind of repeat it over and over again. 
so it becomes second nature. And once you do that, you start to see maybe the inefficiencies in it or like you, you learn to kind of play a little bit with what's actually happening. So for example, daily routines, it might be the morning routine might be a bit different depending on what kind of day you're going to have, right? But there is a benefit of taking your daily routines because most of the time we are robots, like 80% of the time we just repeat the same stuff over and over and over again. You know, think about what you usually do in the morning, like do you make a cup of coffee immediately mm -hmm. or do you read a newspaper or do you look at the sunshine or whatever you do. Like people tend to repeat the same things because it's easy. It's like, um, the, it, it's basically learning something new is hard, changing your patterns is hard, uh, uh, relying on the things that are familiar to you, that you usually do, is quite easy. So we're quite lazy. So because we're quite lazy, we tend to do the same things. We tend to look at the same TV programs. You know, we tend to order the same food. We tend to go to the same restaurants. We tend to do the same choices when we have a break. We tend to do the same things in the morning, same things in the evening. And that's where the dysfunction comes from. So there is some pa patterns there that repeat over time that are actually healthy and beneficial to your growth and progress. And then there's patterns of behavior that are detrimental and, uh, you know, um, not good for, let's say, your longevity or productivity or health or wellness or your mental health or physical health or whatever. And then identifying those processes and patterns is, of course, important that you kind of analyze your daily routines and you say, ah, OK, I could do this differently. But the thing is that people can't easily change everything at once. It's kind of a network, just like in the brain. So you have to like adjust it a little bit. So adjust a little bit your morning routine, not change it completely, but start to do, let's say if you don't do any exercise, you just bring a little bit of exercise while you make coffee always. So you kind of make these cues, you attach into certain cues or in the certain sequence of habits, you, you attach a new habit. It's easier to do it that way instead of like trying to change everything. Like if you never exercise going six times a week to the gym, it's not going to be easy. It's, it's easier to start, you know, small and grow bigger from there. But why do you think people don't want to do that? Why do you think they're driven to extremes? Um, they, they need someone from the outside to show them because they, are, they, ha they don't have any accountability to themselves. They need someone else to be accountable to. So they want someone else to tell what to do and they want to show someone else what they're doing, they want someone else to give feedback. It's what, it's quite lonely and hard to do alone. So that's why we go into all kinds of retreats where we suddenly do a new, completely new routine in the company of someone else. And often when we go back home, you know, we just go back into our own old ways of being and we are like, okay, what happened? <laughs> but it's, it's a good example of how hard it is. Like you go on a company offsite and you do teamwork and then you come back to the work, you don't really bring it back. So it's kind of similar process. But in the end, um, I see that there's a lot of subconscious processes that people do. Um, so like this kind of methodological approach where you use data and you kind of dissect, you analyze your daily routines is very beneficial because you can start to see some things about yourself. Ah, okay, I'm always doing this. I could do this differently. But that can also become like a neurotic thing there. You know, I always need to do this or my day is ruined, in a sense. 
and uh, I fully understand that. I go to sauna every morning. When I travel, I feel like you know I'm a bit off because yeah. because I'm not having it. So it's it's like routines bring comfort. You know, it brings like something to attach to. It brings sense of security in a sense, and that's why people do it. And I believe that's also why people. The very common question that I have when it comes to you know this healthy living and all that is like, but don't you want to enjoy your life? What what do you mean by enjoying your life? Is is basically enjoyment there? Is that you are doing the things you repeatedly do and you like? Doing something difficult and different feels not so enjoyable. So learning something new is not enjoyable. Doing the things that you are used to do repeatedly is enjoyable. So just to give you a simple example, we can have for diets or exercise, but we can have a person who is utterly uh, bored and terrified of the idea of doing exercise. And then we can have a person who is utterly terrified and uh, anxious about the idea of not getting on a run more in the morning or getting some exercise in. It, this can be the same person. It's just a different neural wiring and you know feedback loops and dopamine and all that like same person can be both the one who is addicted to exercise and and completely disgusted about it but the same with food also so same person can be absolutely addicted to bread and pasta and all this like carbohydrates and the same person can be utterly disgusted of the idea of having you know fast carbohydrates same person different wiring and the, the transition or how you kind of transition from that wiring to the other is always like super difficult because it's very comfortable to just do mm. what you always do right? and in the end in the core of all this personal development movement and health optimization all of that is actually behavior change that you try to change behavior it's super difficult and super hard and um uh, I, I fully understand that, you know, people are seeking for a magic pill or, you know, just a pill they can pop and suddenly their problems are gone, in a sense, or, mm. or, or it's very device driven, right? Um, to live healthy, you know, you don't really need red light panels and like um, fancy rings and all that. But these are kind of, you know, it keeps you busy in a way. It's like a child with a toy. You know, you play with it in a sense. If you don't have toys, like how do you how do you learn these new things? So it's like you need this toy in a sense. So the way I see about, for example, let's say sleep optimal sleep tracking, this can be a fun toy to start to pay attention to sleep and start you know the process of rethinking the way you optimize your sleep and daily patterns. But ultimately, you don't really need it. Like you can actually do a lot of it without any of technology. But it speeds up your learning process. It reflects it back to you, it makes you more aware. But ultimately the role of the technology is that it disappears. It's no longer needed. It, it served its purpose. But if, if it became something you rely on, that you can't live without it, then you are attached to it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you can't... You, like like my friend, he's been using O-ring for you know, five years, and he decided to take a break for six months. He had withdrawal symptoms. He had anxiety of not being able to see the data. Like it's it's quite interesting how you can become attached into yeah. into these numbers also, and and that's also what people who don't do it, who never did it, the common question I get is like, don't you get stressed for having that data? Like, 
what if it becomes you know a source of problems on its own i understand that skepticism it's very rare actually most so people become a problem yeah most people for most people it's you know they handle it pretty well like it's you, kind of you don't take it too seriously but it's a useful tool but the moment where it's no longer a servant a tool but it becomes a master that controls you then that's the problem and i think that's kind of what people fear is that the diet or the ring or whatever thing is no longer just serving you but it becomes a self-serving thing on its own and um it like feels it's everything the same with diet right because if you look at the way people eat they're either on an extreme form of diet or they're very casual about the way they eat there doesn't seem to be I don't think there's a good number of, or a very high number of people who kind of apply an 80-20 rule or even a 90-10 to their diet. I think if you look at it, that could cross the year, it will be segmented, I'm, I'm going on holiday or I have something like this, now I've got to go really extreme to get into shape for it. And then the moment they're on holiday, the whole thing falls away, they're eating, they're drinking, massive amounts of inflammation, they come back, they're like, I need to go on a detox. Now it's another extreme thing. And they just kind of hop in and out. There's a lot of ignorance, for sure, in, in it all. Yeah, it's a good, good way to think that also like just being super casual about it is also one extreme. Yeah. You know, it is kind of like you're like, you don't want to know. It's like, and, and you might have bypassing also going on. Like you have this psychological bypass that, um, you know, like being super concerned about health and healthy eating is somehow like sick. That actually, like, uh, I'm just fine by eating healthy f- home food. You know, mm. there's this whole idea and concept that, you know, um, like being extreme is unhealthy. And for me, you know, the fact that I'm kind of eating like my mother was making food, that's already healthy. But my <laughs> my uh, co uh, my colleague, co-author of the Parker's Handbook, Dr. Oli Sovier, he has looked at thousands of people's blood biomarkers. There is no one who is healthy, especially those who eat like regular home food. Like there's a lot of deficiencies and problems and issues that you can identify there. So they're they just ignorant, you know, they just tell themselves a story that I'm generally, you know, living healthy. And I see it a lot like in, in corporate world, you know, yeah, you know, every evening some glasses of wine, you know, like yeah, going late, you know, and all that like, I guess from corporate law world, like I remember when I go in and I speak to corporates, what I find is there's a lot of like, as a coping mechanism, it's like cool down with wine, warm up with caffeine. Yeah. It's kind of the the routine. Yeah. But then, then you can have also a healthy approach to the same thing with a bypass involved. So for example, you can have, um, healthy, the most healthiest stimulants. So you have like mold free coffee, which is like tested to be toxin free. And you know, you have all these like beautiful things we put in still a stimulant, you know, it's a central nervous system stimulant. And then you have alcohol in the evening, but it's actually organic biodynamic. It's, you know, without sulfides. And you also take glutathione and then still sustain with it so that you reduce its risks, (laughs) toxicity. So you kind of like, you, you keep on doing the unhealthy things, but you manage it in a way. But it's fine. I mean, it's, it's a smarter way of doing it. And you can massively reduce the damage that you do to your body by being aware of these things that you can do. 
and um, so so you can do a lot of damaging things if you understand the biochemistry and you kind of hack hack away with it so I, li I like the idea of it that you're a bit smarter doing the same thing but you do it differently and I would say like in last 10 years like I'm still working like a you know workaholic in a sense Are you? yeah I'm working but you're a lot but you're super productive right yeah getting a lot I of things done remember when I read the biohackers handbook one of the things that first appealed to me with my background was the kind of well firstly the whole holistic piece and I think from a European perspective it's very different than how the Americans see biohacking but also the productivity that you had in there and kind of the performance um, when you say you're working still really really hard um, how 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 would you say in terms of your how do you maintain creativity and productivity and that sense of balance with your work yeah so I would say like like that I do still work like a crazy maniac um, but I do it clearly based on data in a much more healthy way because I'm not like speeding up my aging process it actually has been improving my biomarkers are better than they were 10 years ago and I definitely have more work and more you know responsibilities and all that but I would say like the thing that brought most of the difference is not in the way how I do the work it's actually in the way how I recover from it so it's like it, it's about learning meditation and breath work and uh, you know also how food can help you know to reduce inflammation and like optimize you know um, with all the phytochemicals and anti-inflammatory compounds and like nutrients and amino acids and all that like just to build bring in the or the neurotransmitter building blocks that you have all the or the hormonal support or the adrenal function support like a lot of this, that can be super helpful so you can maintain this crazy lifestyle in a sense what but, does that look like for you then so like on a on a day how do you what's your approach in terms of you mentioned you sauna in the morning yeah but if you want to have that balance between being hyper productive but still enjoying life still recovering really well I always yeah. think of it like a bank a bank account, almost right in terms of yeah, it's energy. Like a battery, for sure. Yeah, and you're kind of paying in and withdrawing deposits. So you've got to pay enough in if you're going to keep withdrawing. How do you? What do you utilize? I think there's like cycles in the year. Like there's like people often ask, of course, like what does your day look like? But like last two weeks, I've done like twelve flights. So um, if you have that many, like flights and travel and different hotels and locations and early morning wake-ups and late evening things and all kinds of stuff you don't have a daily routine the same you know mm, yeah. right but you have like strategies that you implement but what I try to do is when I come back from these kind of crazy trips that's when I you know focus on 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 like a healthy way of recovering as quickly as I can from this so I'm ready for the next battle so it's it's that kind of time in between which is important a lot of people they just feel that with another you know cycle of productivity or they think you know they send a couple of more emails or you know answer a couple of more messages all that I try to keep my phone in airplane mode when I'm at home until I've done all my morning things so I take it off airplane mode once I've done all the important things in the day that helps me to you know recover from things so I, so I don't start my what morning. So most people, when they wake up, they have like high, their cortisol levels are high, their stress levels are high. 
immediately, you know, they just as quickly as possible, they get out of the door and go to meetings and workplace and all that. I use that time, the first three, three hours of the morning for a lot of things that people are looking forward to after they get from, back from work. So I do, you know, I go to sauna, I do breath work, I do some exercise, I, I you know, I make some, you know, nice beverage or whatever, and uh, I go outside, I collect some plants for lunch, um, wild herbs, whatever, uh, and then I start my work day. I work then like, you know, could be, could be like um, anywhere between five to seven hours of pretty full deep work. But I can do it because I start my day like that. And do I don't do eat. Do you movement in between or you just literally go for five to seven hours? Straight? The morning, in the morning I do the movement. But okay. during the five to seven hours I'm doing a movement throughout the day. So I use a standing desk and I split my work into 20 to 30 minute blocks and in between I do a little bit of like I could do some kettlebells or just like hanging from a bar or something like this. Um, you know even like red light therapy and all that I, I do as a, as a form of a quick break. Okay. I might do some you know quick bread work stuff. I might even dip into ice bath. So I've kind of set it up so that at home I can, I can be literally in a Zoom call and after that, I just jump into a, into a fridge, into ice bath for a couple of minutes, get out, go to another meeting. So it's kind of like I can't do this if I'm in a typical office environment, right? Mm, of course yeah. not. But it's it's like that that then allows you to have focused attention for the rest of the day. And then in the evening, when you, you know you start, there is no more energy. Uh, then then I might. And, and by the way, I don't eat during the day at, at all. all. I don't have lunch. No, I you eat. Have breakfast? Um, not really. I I don't really have a bre breakfast at all. I've had ten years. I've had uh, one meal a day. Okay. Two dinners in the window of four hours. So I focus like during the day. I focus on getting things done and work done. In the evening, that's when I focus on eating and digesting the food because there's the parasympathetic nervous system activation and digestion is it's not a sympathetic nervous system thing so people have a lot of gut issues because they do a lot of work and then they eat simultaneously also so their, their nervous system you know is highly active and that doesn't help with digestion so i try to like that when i'm you know done with my things that's when i focus on more of the recovery stuff and that includes also eating and then um, in the morning, I might make a you know a beverage like a cup of coffee with butter and MCT oil. I use the coffee as a carrier for nutrients. So I have I stack supplements, but I like to use them in liquid form. So recently, I've been using uh, organ supplements also in my coffee. So I put like liver and heart, kidney, bull testicles in my coffee, reindeer bone broth. Sounds gross, but it's amazing. I was going to say, how does this taste? It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I was in a I was in a marketing conference recently. There was directors from big companies, and so uh, I was I was making them this my morning coffee, and they were like, "What is this?" I put medicinal mushrooms in there, like chaga mushrooms and spices and all kinds of stuff, and they're like, "Ooh, what is this?" Bull testicles with reindeer bone broth. And, and people are like, look at their face. They're like, and then they taste and they it and they're like, like they, they freaking like it. And then they ask where can I buy it. 
<laughs> Seriously, I need to come out no, and try amazing. some of your morning coffee. Yeah, bull testicles are awesome in coffee. So, but what, why, why would you put bull testicles or heart or kidney or liver into your coffee? Is because let's you, let's take liver for example. You have a lot of the minerals that you don't usually get from food that well. You have things like selenium. Uh, women get also iron from there. You have magnesium. You have B vitamins that are building blocks for stress hormones. Also, you have—I mean—you have some amino acids there as well. But there is there is a lot of the things that a stressful person needs, just like metabolic throughout the day uh, to process. And then I put the fats, which is kind of like because you are already in a fasted state, your body is in a fat burning mode because it's using ketones as uh, as, as fuel. So in the morning, I just continue that with fats mainly. So I kind of continue that ketogenic state that I'm in after the night's sleep. And only in the evening I eat carbohydrates. Then. And that's also supportive for sleep. So I do a, more of a cyclical ketogenic diet. I don't really eat a ketogenic diet. Um, but uh, I do fast the whole day. So one meal a day has shown on Roden studies that the same amount of calories when you give them within a four-hour window versus rodents that could eat them same amount of calories within 24 hours. The ones who could eat it at any time they want, they develop metabolic uh, disease more likely. Like From diabetes. that kind of constant grazing. Yeah, their yeah. body has no moments of... The, the process that is key here is autophagy. Mm. Autophagy is the process through which your body is recycling damaged cells. So this doesn't happen um, if you have constant, constantly food available. So you need to fast for it. And it can be amplified with heat alteration like ice baths and sauna. And it can be amplified by... Um, yeah, there's some some supplements also for it, for sure. So would but you recommend this with women? Or do you recommend they... Cause like, women, women can also do one meal a day, yes. Even and not disrupt their hormones? Not if they, if they load on carbohydrates in the evening. Okay. Yeah, like, or or at least um, if you eat only a fat and protein-based diet with some fibers, then at least once a week have a good carb, you know, reload. Then it's less likely to affect your hormones. But it's good to remember that hormones, the key building block for hormones is actually fats, it's fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And if you are on a high, low-fat diet, that's, that's also pretty problematic for mm -hmm. hormones as well. So like uh, going on extreme high fat diet is problematic. Going on extreme low fat diet is kind of problematic, both hormonally. So there is a sweet balance for um, for women in, in this case. And I would also recommend if you do a lot of exercise, a lot of physical things that you also uh, cycle in carbohydrates. But from a productivity standpoint, if you want to get things done, from a longevity standpoint, calorie restriction, high-fat diets, ketogenic diets, based on studies, is, 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 you know, the most beneficial for slowing down the aging process and rejuvenation. And my, like, my um, colleague uh, in our company, um, Seamland, who wrote the book Metabolic Autophagy, about these processes and Stronger by Stress, uh, he has done an anti-age, kind, of kind of a longevity or aging study uh, called Dunedin Pace. It's one of those gold standard studies on the aging speed. It measures how many years you age on average in average year for someone of your age. 
So if, if the result is one year, then you age one year in one year. But if it's 0.7, for example, then you age 0.7 years in one year. And this test became quite famous because of Brian Johnson, who is this uh, millionaire um, guy who sold his company to PayPal. And he realized that he's like fat and uh, inflamed and tired and all kinds of things. And then he's been, he has been spending now two million to try to slow down his aging process uh, a year. And his Dunedin test result is a bit over 1.7 right now. And he looks yeah, over younger. Over 1.7, so he's aging faster. No, no, 0 0.7. Oh, 0 0.7. Yeah, okay. sorry. Zero point, it's, it's a bit over 0 0.7. Okay. And Seamland, uh, his test result came back now at 0 0.62. It's a world record now. And what he does is only one meal a day, just like what I've done for 10 years. Uh, what he has also done for 10 years, one meal a day. And he exercises mainly only strength training, not like long cardio stuff. And he eats a cyclical ketogenic diet. He's mainly on ketosis most of the time. And uh, then he, he he goes to sauna on a regular basis. Yeah, I've, uh, done, I've, I've done his program actually. He has a really good longevity yeah. program. Yeah, like if you look at in the end what the longevity program is about, like you don't need two million a year. No, you don't. Like in you fact, don't. His need... program is brilliant because it's very simple and it lays out like three tiers in terms of the results. You probably know this already, in terms, but just for people listening, that the results that you want to get, ultimately like transcending to what he calls God mode. And I found it was like really well done. Yeah, it's kind of, of there's tiers like you can like like kind of what is the minimum that you yeah. should do. And then the God mode is like all kinds of things based on studies that you could potentially do. And but then there's then something it's not in between. As expen it's nowhere near like it's not expensive to do if you see what I mean. No, it's, it's not, not on the par with. No, it's, and it's not about like consuming trendy supplements and all that like. He recommends, like, as a source of amino acids, things like just jello, for mm. example. So just gelatin, which is a source of collagen. Now there's all kinds of, like, collagen products on the market, of course, like more branded and more, like, isolated uh, compounds and all that. But, yeah, like, his, his protocol is a lot, of, a lot about, like, slowing down the different processes of aging. And as you age, there are certain nutrients that there is an increased need for and there are certain processes in the body that slow down. Good example is NAD. NAD levels are half of what they... Uh, when you are 45, NAD levels are half of what they were when you were 18 in your mitochondria. So anything that boosts and supports NAD levels is going to be beneficial for your recovery time and slowing down your aging process and all that. You can have a supplement that supports your NAD levels or you can do things like autophagy or fasting or sleeping enough and reducing stress and all that is also going to help your NAD levels. So a lot of the healthy living things are actually free. But the thing is also like a lot of these things require you to go to a little bit of a area of like a, he calls it um, like he calls it um, like this kind of zone of being uncomfortable, in a sense. So it's it's like you know going like a to slightly the, outside of the comfort zone. Yeah, like you, like you kind of like do ice baths and you do saunas and you do heavy workouts, 
and you fast and you you know you go to sleep even though you don't want to <laughs> and yeah. all that so I, I guess there is like a little bit of control that will definitely help with the aging process but it's a good question like based on the studies the strongest indicator for longevity in rodent studies is calorie restriction the most proven method for slowing down uh, aging in humans is uh, calorie restriction what does that mean then you probably going to live long but you're going to be a bit miserable and a bit tired also all the time and libido less and yeah, yeah yeah like libido less and all that so if you on the other hand you focus on a ho- growth in a way you, you trigger growth hormone all the time you have like excess calories and nutrients and all that you you might you know develop diabetes and cancer so it's kind of like the what, what do you what do you want to have like do you want to live long and miserable or do you want to have cancer <laughs> <laughs> of course it's not as black and white and cancer is is, is more than that and it's uh, it's often um just luck also partly uh, with that but with metabolic disease definitely you can reduce your risk factors a lot and degenerative diseases are the biggest risk factors of our generation in a sense of dying or any generation really that um, if you look at it 60, 62% no sorry 64% of people who are more than 65 years old they have more than two degenerative disease 27% of world population has one or more degenerative disease and those are what is a degenerative disease it's like diabetes alzheimer's cardiovascular disease um, nervous system issues like parkinson's and alzheimer's um, so or degeneration of the discs in your back or like something like this so processes that break down the body slowly and the things that speed it up uh, is of course kind of typical western modern lifestyle which is full of stress and not sleeping enough and like running from one place to another and uh, sleeping uh, uh, sleeping unoptimally and eating bad food and all that uh, or well not bad food but like um, inflammatory food inflammatory foods and and then um, the things that would potentially slow it down are things that reduce oxidative stress on a cellular level that reduce the risk of DNA damage that reduce uh, metabolic issues and you can definitely based on studies like uh, different lifestyle factors and dietary interventions can reduce your risk of diabetes and Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease but the thing is that you have to like do it 10-20 years earlier like you can't do it when you have heart disease or diabetes i mean you can do something you can kind of there is ways to track yourself back back to health but it's more expensive in a sense and it's like a lot of damage has already been done compared to if you actually do it in a more preventive way and preventive healthcare is the future i think in in terms of medicine because the healthcare system is is not a healthcare system it's a sick care system it focuses on diagnosis of sickness and illness it basically focuses on diagnosing things that are when for the things that show that it's already too late man and um and of course they give you some pill or something to just like help you to deal with it and or or restore the balance for a minute but in the end to prevent that that doesn't happen again that's not like part of the equation 
or to take action before you are ill. And I believe it's cheaper, I just don't believe, but that's the truth, is that it's cheaper to increase health than it is to treat sickness. And it's cheaper to prevent disease than it is to treat sickness, because it's pretty cheap, almost free choices that you do every day that will help reduce that risk factor. Of course, you could hit, be hit by a car. And for my generation, it's, you know, it's the biggest risk factor outside of degenerative diseases is that I will be hit by a car. So it's a good idea to use a seat belt in your 30s. It's actually the biggest preventive health thing that you can do is to use a seat belt. But um, it's less likely that you will die of an infectious disease or a virus or something like this. It's much more likely that you will die of heart disease and, and cancer and, uh, and metabolic issues. And but all we didn't of these. Really learn, did we? When you think about it, like having been through a pandemic, a lot of governments initially were like, "We, we can see obesity is a problem. We need to be more preventative." And certainly here in the UK, the prime minister initially was like, "I want to get everyone healthy and fit. I'm going to go out running." But it was it was relatively short lived in terms of any kind of prevention, in terms of actually changing people's fundamental health risks. Everyone heard during the pandemic that if you have one of these degenerative diseases, you're in a risk group. Mm. But newsflash, it's for everything, like any mm. kind of seasonal flu or influenza or any kind of risk of hospitalization goes off the roof if you have a degenerative disease. Like it's a comorbidity, you know. It's like it, it's a, it's a, it increases the risks of morbidity in in an event of instability in your system in any any kind of case. So, um, but we've not seemingly reduced. We the haven't fo we haven't focused on it at all. If you take obesity, no. obesity is one of the big, biggest risk factors, cofactors, and um, at least in Europe, in average, thirty-three uh, percent of men are overweight, and uh, sorry, fifty-fifty-six uh, percent are overweight, and it's about thirty. 3% that have obesity. So um, obesity is a huge risk factor, but being overweight is also. But like basically, like there's countries like Spain where it's 60%. 60%, 60 are 60 overweight or obese. Yeah, 60% are overweight or obese. And, yeah. and the thing is that um, these numbers are going up based on world obesity. Um, association studies and predictions, these are going up very fast. Like um, for women, it's, women it's less. Uh, if I remember, it's like 25, 26 percent. Have, have, Why do you obese. think that is? Do you think women are more conscious of their health? Or? Potentially, smaller portions of food. I don't know what it is. Maybe yeah. they take less risks. But in the end, um, uh, also for women, it will go from like let's say 25% to 30% in just a couple of years, in predicted. Um, so we are not getting better, and the pandemic actually accelerated a lot of these predictions because people were uh, didn't go to gym, they ordered everything at home, you know, they didn't move around, they didn't meet people. Um, so, and and it's not that it happened then, that actually installed behaviors. On a collective level um, that are still there 
There's still a lot of people who order food at home That's instead true. of going out. There's still a lot of people who don't go to the gym because they kind of got used to not going there. Um, people they, walk less now because they work from home. Yeah, they rather have a Zoom call than mm. go to a meeting. So there is a lot of behaviors that were implemented on a collective level during that time that are just making us all worse in that those those statistics and predictions in, in that regard. So in US, the life expectancy has been basically increasing all industrial time from like 45 to over 80 years. But now it's first time it's declining and it's because of modern lifestyle. So you would think that biohacking would be the solution. I uh, uh, like, like becoming aware and optimizing these things. But people often start these things too late. They need a trauma first. They need some kind of health issue. They need need like doctor to tell them that you're gonna die if you don't change something. And often they even then people don't change anything. It's actually very interesting. You can tell someone who has cancer that you have to do now something for the next 18 months. And it's like the adherence is super low. Like even when they have cancer? Even, even if they know what they could potentially do to just extend their health, uh, health span a little bit, lifespan a little bit, they still don't do it. And it's, it's in medicine. Yeah. Medicine, there's the adherence problem is like 60% of people don't do what the doctor tells them to do. But the adherence to taking a pill is pretty high, right? Yeah, but try lifestyle. try lifestyle. Yeah, lifestyle's too hard. It's even harder. Yeah, it's easier. Really hard. And the, the pills is sixty percent adherence. Oh, this pill is sixty percent. Yeah, lifestyle because is even I worse. Pill is actually. If you tell someone worse. you have to lose weight, you know, you ha- start. You, you should like um, start exercise, eat healthy food. Like most people don't do it. Like eighty percent of people are not going to do anything. Which kind of brings us back to the beginning when you were looking at the sense of self and people's kind of self-actualization um, and how they create their reality. What do you think is the answer? Like you talked a little bit about meditation. I know from my own journey, it was actually going inwards was the only way for me to kind of become more in alignment with who I was uh, and allow that to kind of come out. I'm curious what you think the answer is. Yeah, I mean, I explained the dangers of the extremes in a sense, and like that there is some shadow also, you know, what leads to certain place. But if, if like most people don't change their behavior, it's actually very beneficial that if your uh, extreme health behavior is driven by a trauma, <laughs> in a sense, mm-hmm. that it's actually it's beneficial that, you know, it becomes a control mechanism because it's actually a healthier control mechanism. than let's say, you know, smoking crack cocaine. So like, or drinking alcohol, like a sponge. So there is, there is, it's a, as a soothing mechanism, it's actually one of the healthier ones to be a bit like a exercise health, you know, diet nut in a sense. But the problem here is that there's an industry that exploits these people, you know, mm. kind of exploits them in a sense. I mean, it's a free market economy. So if, if there is a need, you know, then there's a supply very soon. So people are sold all kinds of solutions. And then we have these extreme healthy influencers who sell pretty extreme solutions in a sense. And um, that's fine on its own. Um, and and we kind of need these characters in a sense to, to you know become aware of what is possible because there's always like someone who is kind of an Olympic athlete in doing something to the extreme. Um, 
uh, yeah. So I, I think like internet at least and through these platforms, it is providing some alternatives to the kind of basic narrative, eat the food to ramid kind of thing, like government suggestions or regulations, which people kind of intuitively feel is not working. If it was working, we would actually We'd improve. Look very different. We would improve our targets. Yeah. Obesity would go down, right? You know, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, cancer. All of this would go down if the if the, if it is working. If it was working. If the system is working, we would improve. But if we look at the data, we are not improving. So we need something else, and that I think is kind of what deep inside people feel is like we need a new system. We need something else, and I believe that like a, the preventive healthcare system could potentially be you know something that brings you know hope and maybe focus on health span and health span optimization a lot of this data is very beneficial and what ai is bringing because this is very complex it's very easy it's not easy but it's like what medicine has at its best done is to reduce human health into a single variable like cholesterol level or a blood sugar level but actually health is more complex than that and everyone who does this stuff in the extreme knows that you know you can't just measure cholesterol level you have to measure hundreds of things and it's about understanding the deficiencies and fixing the color like issues in a systematic le level and that there's correlations between things like you can't just look at the thyroid you have to look at like a lot of things for example if you have thyroid problems mm. so if you want to fix it so in the end the way how I see it is that um, because it was very hard and messy and complex to look at a complex picture, the answer was a reductionist approach of like reducing human health into single variable. Now with the help of machine learning and data, uh, you know, that artificial intelligence could potentially analyze, you can have very soon a conversation with an advanced intelligence about your health specifically. Like that knows your DNA, your blood work, your daily patterns, your your behaviors, your the data from your ordering, um, your gut issues and, and microbi microbial analysis and all that. And you can have a conversation. What should I order? You know, when I order a food delivery, um, like what type of exercise would be optimal for me based on my genetics? Should I eat more kale or not? And like. A lot of these conversations um, that people are having with doctors or dietitians or nutritionists or like personal trainers and all that, um, these people who we consider experts are not actually able to even deliver optimal answers because it's very complex and hard. So we would think with doctors, for example, that they would understand nutrition, but on the average amount of nutritional training that doctors get in medical school is, um, according to my doctor colleagues, is two hours. Mm, that's so what it, I learned about two hours. I mean, they, they know about a lot about what's going on in the human body and how it works, and like they specialize in very narrow areas, but they are not experts on nutrition at all. Like, but still, they behave like they know, mm. as if they are the experts. Or they dismiss nutrition. like they know, and they say, no, no, no. It, you they, don't need to look at that. You don't need to worry about your micronutrients. That's got nothing to do with your thyroid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we see it in the hospital, what kind of food they serve to you. Mm. Like when you're recovering from heart surgery, they bring you like 
piece of bread and apple crumble and custard. <laughs> yeah, lovely <laughs> English breakfast. Yeah. So um, the way I see it is that uh, because we humans we are not very good at this complexity, uh, it's very it's actually beneficial that our incapabilities being replaced by machines that are much more intelligent, capable of doing it. So it it means that you know you will have a personal trainer or guide that is actually in the form of an algorithm that does a better job than any doctor or nutritionist or, or personal trainer can do. But in the end it, it doesn't change the fact that you have to do the work. Exactly. It's you have to you have to plans. change the behavior. And and the biggest the absolutely biggest success factor to actually being able to change your lifestyle is not data, it's not certain device, it's not certain diet. It is community. It is people you surround yourself with. If if you are surrounded by people who laugh at your diet, you're not going to continue doing it. But if you're surrounded by people who support you um, and and who you learn from, that's beneficial. And that's what I see. You know, these kind of conferences like Health Optimization Summit and the Parkour Summit that I organize. It's a place where you find people who are struggling with the same issue as you are. They want to change something, and you find the others. The data doesn't really matter as much as the you know new friends that you can surround yourself with, and uh, I think technology can there also help that we can you know more easily connect to others who are you know wanna you know achieve the same or change the same things, wanna do the crazy ice baths or bread work every morning or whatever. Like it's it's so important. That's why people pay for gym memberships. That's why people pay for all kinds of um, you know programs and coaches and all that. Uh, so that they would have someone who they're accountable to because they're not accountable to themselves or have a community that they feel they're accountable to because they, they, they can't really you know easily do those changes alone. So that's kind of what is key there. All right. That's a very good point. Yeah. So on that note, we can close on the Biohacker Summit is next in October. Yeah, 14 and 15 of October in Amsterdam. And every year we have a different team that we focus on. Um, previously, we had teams like longevity and all that. Now, now it's expanding consciousness, so it's in all it's in different forms. 14, 15 October, and we also plan to do an event in 2024 in Helsinki, in Finland, and that will focus actually on daily routines, most likely. So awesome. it's uh, it's going to gather, you know, different perspectives and people and technologies and all that, like that are kind of tackling on these on these things that we spoke about. Amazing. And you just relaunched your podcast. Yeah, the Bikers podcast is is running again. And um, uh, we feature a lot of the excellent presentations that have been given in Biker Summit previously. And then I'm adding my own take. So if the topic is, let's say, ketogenic diets, then I speak about that, like what's the latest science and all that, like in combination with some, some of the world's top experts explaining it. Amazing. And where can people connect with you, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on Instagram, obviously. If you want to see my fake profile online, so <laughs> <laughs> my facade. See my carefully shot photographs. <laughs> yeah, 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 Marina. But like um, Biker Summit also on Instagram and uh, yeah, bikersummit.com and teemarina.com for my ideas. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. It's Wonderful. Nice to chat.
If you enjoy this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career, and life, all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started. And I'll see you on the inside.